If you can be hitting that sort of 9% fibre, you're generally going to be meeting the sow's requirements in terms of feeling full um, and being relaxed. I suppose to put this into context, um, just for people listening, is a dry sow diet that would have, say, 17, 17.5% hulls um, balanced up with barley, a bit of soya and your premix, that will come in somewhere around 9.4, 9.5% fibre. And then at the other end of the scale, if you were feeding about 10% hulls, putting that with essentially a lot of barley, a little bit of soya in your premix, you'd be coming in sort of 7.3% fibre. So that will just give you an idea of the range of fibre levels and the contribution from your fibre source within the diet. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Pig Edge, Chagas's Pig Podcast with me, Amy Quinn where we are bringing you the latest news, information and advice to keep Irish pig farmers up to date. Fiona O'Mara, commercial pig nutritionist at Inform Nutrition, joins us on today's episode to discuss all things pig nutrition. From dry cell fibre levels, the aftermath of the zinc oxide removal and finisher phase feeding, I first asked Fiona to tell me what are the key issues or queries she's getting at the moment from farmers. I suppose it varies across farms, to be honest. Um, But if I break it down across production stages and maybe we can go into some of these in a bit more detail. I suppose wean piglets, it's the the post-zinc reality that we're seeing at farm level now, um, finding the right formula for piglets post-weaning on individual farms. So this seems to have affected some farms more than others, but a lot of people have had to implement changes in terms of how and when pigs are weaned. So it's been an interesting time from that point of view. And then in older weaners and finishers, I suppose it's been an interesting few years in terms of balancing diet cost and performance, looking at growth and feed conversion. There were massive changes in raw material costs, which everyone is all too well aware of. And that brought its own challenges in terms of balancing pig performance with input costs. You know, an example is soy oil became really expensive in recent years. So the reality of that being used in older finisher diets is something we've played around with, with individual farms. So different ingredients and different combinations while maintaining performance at farm level. Then in the farrowing house, I suppose a lot of producers have moved to an older weaning age, um, tying back to that post-zinc world. Um, Many farms are kind of weaning up around 30 days now. So it's become more important than ever to feed lactating and dry sows um, efficiently and correctly. So I suppose we're asking these sows to have larger litters to milk for longer. Um, so sow care is a huge topic at the moment on farms. Um, you know, simple tactics in the farrowing house, like making sure your sows are eating well enough early in lactation and ensuring they're hitting that peak feed intake to drive peak milk production and maintain that through a 30-day lactation. Having a dense enough diet to do that, it's never been so important. And then I suppose to complete the farm, dry sow feeding obviously, as I mentioned, has a direct impact on that farrowing house performance. So monitoring dry sows really closely is something that's been done really well at farm level now. Um, But I think farmers are really aware of sow body condition uh, and it's something that we'd be constantly monitoring on farm Because as you know yourself, if that's wrong, it can have negative effects across the entire farm and production system. 
Fiona, you mentioned a bit more of a focus on the dry sow diet. Can you take us through some of the issues or developments that you're seeing here? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I suppose in the past it was the diet that got the least attention, but it's something that needs to be watched really closely. I suppose it's a diet and a feeding stage that has to play multiple roles at farm level. So we have to look after these sows. You know, we're looking at recovery post-weaning, through service, maintaining a healthy pregnancy, and then getting these sows into the farrowing house to farrow down in the ideal body condition that they're fit for farrowing. And we're looking for overall satisfactory reproductive performance. So um, an interesting one that comes up for us a lot on farm is obviously this is the one part of your farm where you're essentially asking animals not to eat to their full intake capacity. So we have to restrict these sows in terms of intake volume during gestation to make sure they're farrowing down in the ideal body condition. So looking after them throughout the different stages of gestation to maintain a successful pregnancy is really important. I suppose there's often a flat level on that dry sow feed curve in the middle of gestation, say between sort of day 30 and day 80 to 85. So we need to make sure that these sows are feeling full enough, that they're content, um, and we need to avoid things like aggression becoming an issue, uh, particularly, I suppose, since we've all had to move to loose dry, dry sow housing, which is obviously a requirement now. And I suppose this is where fibre and a correctly balanced diet and your premix comes in. So meeting those sow's needs while trying to keep her happy on a restricted feed level. Um Related to this, I suppose, one thing that we'd always check on farms, if, you know, things like the feed curve look okay, but the sows are tending to get a bit fat, is those raw material values that you have in for your individual ingredients on your feed system. Or if you're feeding a compound diet, that megajoules figure that you have set to that diet, it's really important that these are correct and if you're not sure, it's easy to pick up the phone and run these past somebody. So um, I suppose when you're monitoring body condition really closely, your feed curve is using that megajoules figure to determine the quantity of feed that your sows are going to be fed. So these must be correct. Um, I suppose I'd point out as well on that is if you're chatting to an, another farmer and you're comparing your feed curves just to be aware that different feed systems, Big Dutchman's versus Funkies versus Data Mixes, for example, they actually deal with raw material values a little bit differently um, depending on what system you're using. So it's important not to get too hung up on the numbers, but to watch the shape of your curve. Um, the numbers on the curve might not be comparable across different feed systems. Um, and I'd also say in terms of dry sow body condition, don't be afraid to get someone external in to have a look at your sows and your feed curve. Um, I've horses at home myself and I know when you're looking at the, the same group of animals all the time, it can be really, really difficult to kind of take note of body condition changes over time because they happen quite gradually. But I suppose a fresh set of eyes coming in from time to time is definitely a positive thing. 
Um, and if you're looking at your dry soak condition and you feel there's an area that needs to be sort of zoned in on, look at where those changes on the curve are um, and get some advice based on what's a suitable change level. It's often only very small tweaks um, that will produce a gradual change and just help to improve your dry sow body condition. If we look at dry sow fibre levels, what are the average current fibre levels you're seeing on farms and, and how high can you go with the fibre levels? Yeah, it depends, I suppose, based on what's practical in relation to a few different things uh, like the ingredients that you have available, your actual physical ability to feed certain materials and then taking note of sow behaviour on farms. So how sows are behaving in general. Are you seeing a lot of activity throughout the house? Sows getting up and down constantly, um, aggressive sort of symbols that you need to take note of that's where fiber can really come in um, and be really important so in terms of levels i'd say the absolute minimum for feeding dry sows is a dietary level of around 77 percent in loose house systems but this would be a very low level um, across commercial farms we'd see levels varying from seven and a half percent dietary fiber up to sort of nine and a half percent or even some people pushing it towards 10% now. So if you can be hitting that sort of 9% fibre, you're generally going to be meeting the sales requirements in terms of feeling full um, and being relaxed. I suppose to put this into context, um, just for people listening, is a dry sow diet that would have, say, 17, 17.5% hulls um, balanced up with barley, a bit of soya and your premix, that will come in somewhere around 9.4, 9.5% fibre. And then at the other end of the scale, if you were feeding about 10% hulls and putting that with essentially a lot of barley, a little bit of soya in your premix, you'd be coming in sort of 7.3% fibre. So that will just give you an idea of the range of fibre levels and the contribution from your fibre source within the diet. Um but the closer to sort of nine, nine and a half percent you can be, um, the better in terms of satiety across your sows on farm. You were talking about hulls there. Is there any difference in the type of fibre ingredients you can use to reach these higher levels? There are, I suppose. Hulls is attractive because it's widely available, firstly, and the fibre in it is quite functional for sows and it's quite a high level. So you're talking about 34% fibre in your hulls. Um, physically, it's handy for, say, whole mixers that are wet feeding. It will crumble essentially itself. You don't need to grind it into your wet feed tank. And just before I move away from hulls, I suppose just to mention that they are a byproduct. So despite their nature as a really good fibre source in the diet, we do have to take into account that there can be a mycotoxin risk. Um, now, we'd be screening samples fairly often as mills would be and incoming shipments would be screened as well. And there hasn't been many issues in recent years with hulls, but I would recommend that people are using a mycotoxin binder in their dry sow diets um, through the premix and in their lactating sow diets just to avoid any issues there. Um, in terms of other ingredients that will be available then, Bee pulp is still quite popular um, among a good few farmers. It's often something that, you know, they've used on farm for years and years and their parents might have used it and they always liked it. But there are reasons for that. It supplies really good gut fill to the sows, um, but it can be cost prohibitive. 
And sometimes it can be hard to get a constant supply. So um, for home mixers as well that are um, grinding beet pulp, it can be a little bit hard on gear. But I suppose the trade-off for that is if you're having aggression issues, it can be a really good ingredient to provide that sort of swell in the gut and help keep the sows happy. Um, a combination of hulls and beet pulp is a really nice one. I have one farmer at the minute feeling sort of seven, seven and a half percent beet pulp in conjunction with sort of 12 percent hulls. And that's giving him an overall dietary fibre level of about nine percent. And that's worked really well on his unit. Um, that's a place where they have to feed two feeds together in the morning because they would have had aggression issues in the past and to do with, I suppose, feeding times during the day and what's available based on tank usage. And he's found that to work really well. So that's an attractive option, but obviously cost has to come into it as well. And there are other ingredients that are available um, and are still used. And things like distillers, rape, pollard um, and sunflower, for example. Now, the fibre in sunflower wouldn't be as digestible and would have poorer function than other ingredients. So you often wouldn't see that used at high levels. Uh, but the likes of pollard can be hard to handle if you have it as a raw material, you know, if you're home mixing and you're taking that in as a raw material. So in the past, pollard might have been used up to sort of 15% inclusion in dry sow diets, but we're not seeing that as a common source at those kind of levels anymore. But the mills would use it and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it as a fibre source. Um, one thing to mention as well when we're just talking about dietary fibre is water intake is really important when we're looking at fibre. So people tend to use pretty high water to feed ratios if they're liquid feeding dry sows, especially in the summer. But if you're dry feeding, it's really important to make sure that your flow rates and your water availability within your dry sow house is sufficient. Um, on the wet feed side, some farmers have to drop their water to feed ratios during the winter. But I would just say don't drop it too low. Generally, people are well up above four to one. They're sort of four and a half, five to one, which is sufficient. But if you do have to drop it low for any reason, just make sure that your nipples are in good working order in the house as well. And what are the negatives to increasing fibre levels? Um, cost can come into it, in depending on, again, what, um, what sort of sources you're using. But one physical one is lines blocking. So obviously, if this is if you'd be wet feeding now, we like fibre because of its ability to absorb water, swell in the gut and keep that sow happy. But the other flip side of that is if you've got dry sow feed sitting in a feed line for 23 hours of the day, if you're feeding them twice in the morning, you do just need to be careful. So I would say if you're changing fibre levels or you're trying to increase them in the diet, especially if you're using different raw material sources, just increase it slowly and play around with it because every farm is different. The length of your feed line, the amount of fermentation that could be happening in those feed lines, that'll vary from farm to farm. So you do just need to be slightly careful. But overall, I think a lot of people are moving towards nine, nine and a half percent dietary fibre in dry side diets. What results would you expect to see with raising the fibre levels? I suppose what are you trying to do by increasing them is obviously keep your sow happy 
Um, you want to slow down the passage rate of that feed through the gut. So you want that sow to feel full for longer and keep her lying down, stop her moving around. Um, I suppose things like constipation, particularly in the lead up to farrowing, can be an issue on some units. So feces, you can physically check it really easily. Um, but it may even be worth, if you bring in your dry cells into the farrowing house and you're having a bit of a constipation, constipation issue prior to farrowing, things like top dressing a bit of hulls for a couple of days is a tactic that has worked really well because obviously most people have to feed the lactating sow diet in the farrowing house. They don't have the option of feeding the dry sow diet but you're creating a sort of a big drop in fiber levels. So that's just one tip. If you're if you're seeing a bit of constipation prior to farrowing, top dressing hulls. And if anyone wants to get onto us about the mats of how much to give, um, it's not a big job and it just can help a little bit. I suppose other things you'd see when you increase fiber levels is less activity around the pens and that obviously then has a direct impact on less lameness, less aggression. Um, often a sign, I suppose, that sows are not satisfied is that constant chewing or mastication, that sort of white foam around their mouth, sham biting, whatever you want to call it. Um, this can end up leading to things like gastric ulcers. So by increasing that fibre level, if you can keep her fuller for longer, it's going to have a beneficial impact and you should stop seeing as much of that. And then the other one is you're obviously trying to increase stomach capacity, particularly with young gilts. Um, so you want to maximise the ability of gilts and sows to take in as much feed as possible in the farrowing house. So by increasing the fibre in the dry sow diet, you're creating that environment where the stomach is used to being full, you're stretching it as much as you can and you're promoting high intakes. Uh, I suppose the one other thing to consider just stepping slightly away from fibre, but just on that topic of aggression in sows is the grist size of your diet. So this can be hard to control and it very much depends on what mill type you have. Some people can only grind one size and you have to find a happy medium that will work for your finishers and your sows. But we had um, a farm last year who the sows just were a little bit unsettled during the day and he had the ability to actually change the grist size of his diet. So I went out with my sieve numerous times and we screened stuff through the sieve using different um, widths in terms of grist size through the grinder and we found really, really positive results in terms of just increasing that a little bit. The sows slept for much longer and were generally less active. I suppose we'd already pushed the fibre levels as much as was possible with those feed lines. So we had to try something else and that's just another angle to think about if you're struggling with something like aggression in your sows. Fiona, you mentioned the post-sync reality earlier. What are you seeing on farms in terms of the after effects? Yeah, this has definitely been a learning curve, I suppose, for everyone in the pig industry in Ireland and across Europe. I think, to be honest, the best conclusion I can come to is that the solutions are effective on different farms. They seem to be farm specific. So zinc oxide did an amazing job as 
sort of a blanket solution to post-weaning scours, if I can call it that. Whereas now people are really having to zone in on individual issues across their own farms. So some people were lucky enough to remove zinc without too many detrimental effects. Simple solutions like a bit of a reduction in dietary crude protein was enough to avoid any significant post-weaning scour problems. But other farms have had it much more have found it much more difficult to remove. And I think a really open-eyed approach across your entire system is really needed. So it could be numerous changes that you need to make. Um, I mentioned a lot of people gone to 30 days weaning age or certainly gone into the late 20s. Your protein levels of your diets, um, adding an additional fibre source for those piglets to help with passage rate through the the gut. Sorry. (laughs) Because things like zinc was an appetite suppressant. So we now, in some cases, have seen that you've actually had to slow down the passage rate a little bit so you're not ending up with too much excess protein in the hindgut, which is obviously going to contribute to your scours. So different things like that. Another one would be grouping pigs prior to weaning by lifting the boards in the farrowing house. You're trying to reduce stress on those piglets in any way that you possibly can. So if they socialise amongst one another already, that can help them when they are then put into a first stage wiener pen together. And then I suppose, of course, there's a massive range of feed additives available on the market and finding the right one for your farm and your specific issue is something that's important and might be a bit tedious, but there are a lot of them available. So it's just figuring out what will work for you. The other really important thing, I suppose, when we're talking about removing zinc and gut health and trying to manage these bugs essentially is water quality. And I think we only have to look to the poultry industry to appreciate the importance of water quality. And something I would say is a lot of people sample their water directly at the incoming source to the farm. But I think it's well worth sampling water in your first stage wiener house directly out of a nipple and get that tested for different bugs because you might have quite a high bacterial load from things like contamination of biofilms along your water lines. Um, So it would be really important to test the water that's actually being used to make up your feed if you're a liquid feeding and from the nipples in the house. So chlorinating water and adding acids has become far more common. Um, particularly for wieners. And I think that's become nearly a standard practice at farm level at this stage, which is great to see. But just if anyone's not doing it, don't forget to consider that bit. I suppose we have to remember that pigs are drinking almost three times the volume in terms of what they're eating. So if that has a really high bacterial load, it's important that we're addressing that as well. And I would say if you're having a specific issue, don't be afraid to you know, consult with your vet, try and diagnose that specific issue you have in terms of a dominant bug or bacteria that might be causing an issue. That might just help steer you in the correct direction in terms of which feed additive, which acid or general solutions that you need to look at. And I think for farms having a lot of trouble, just look at the entire picture because it's probably a combination of solutions that will be implemented going forward that will work for you. If we touch quickly on finishers, what are you seeing in terms of phase feeding? 
Yeah, I suppose on the ground in Ireland, it's quite common to use two finisher diets on some of the bigger units. So a typical split, I suppose, would be the start of your finisher period, whether that's late 30s, 40 kilos, up to sort of 75 or 80 kilos. And then a second diet fed from there to slaughter. Um, To be honest, with the way Irish farms were built and expanded over the years, it's pretty much farm specific in terms of how practical it is to feed two diets. So if you're wet feeding, you might have to run two separate feed lines through your entire farm to be able to do that. And that's just not practical for some people. And then for smaller farms, I suppose it might not be viable to go making up enough mixes if you want to have two or three different diets and you're only feeding a small number of pins, your mix quantity mightn't be big enough. So that has to be taken into account. Uh, I suppose it's harder to implement with our system in Ireland compared to, say, the American system. Their barn system would be an all-in, all-out where groups of pigs are being transferred in massive numbers together and they can change their diets with sort of every 15 kilos of gain throughout the finisher period and the entire barn is changing together. So I think that kind of system, they were purpose-built for that in a lot of cases, which isn't practical in Ireland. But I suppose the bottom line and the whole idea behind phase feeding is that the nutrient requirements and the intake capacity of finisher pigs changes quite significantly from, say, 40 kilos compared to when they're hitting slaughter weight. So even if your performance is really good on one diet and a lot of people, you know, do have extremely good performance, there may be a cheaper way of doing it towards the end because of their ability to eat more and those slight changes in requirements. So it may be something that will come on stream a little more, but I think two diets is probably the most common thing. Some people are still using one, but as I say, it's just hard to get off the ground in certain situations. Fiona, if we talk more generally, um, pig production has a relatively low carbon footprint, but look, reductions are needed all the same. So with soya making up about a third of the carbon footprint in pig production, what other protein sources do you think we can look to, I suppose, now and into the future? Yeah, I suppose, obviously, soya is the biggest contributor in Irish pork production. And the most obvious option here that's practical is reducing your soya usage by increasing your amino acid usage in your premix. So that way you're keeping the spec of your finished diet the same, but you're just supplying a proportion of those required amino acids through the premix instead of them coming from soya. Um, This obviously has additional effects to um, pig health in terms of you're not sending a load of excess protein into the hindgut if you're having to feed really high levels of soya. But I suppose there's also a commercial aspect to this Um, And you have to balance it because if soya is cheap and amino acids are expensive, it might be more attractive to use more soya. Whereas if amino acids come down in price, you can use less soya and rebalance it that way. Um, I suppose while I'm on the amino acid thing, there are two other things that you should consider. One is if you're liquid feeding, amino acid degradation can happen after a number of hours in liquid feed. So depending on what sort of feed system you're working with. If you've got a satellite feed out tank that's, you know, mixing for a couple of hours 
or you've got probe feeders that maybe aren't being managed perfectly and you've a good few troughs with feed level up over that probe for a number of hours. You need to be careful if you've a lot of your amino acid supply coming from synthetics. I suppose while I was carrying out my PhD, we looked at this specific thing on commercial pig units and we did find evidence of it after sort of three, four hours in troughs. So that's probably a whole podcast in itself, to be honest. So I won't go there, but just to keep it in mind. And the second thing, I suppose, from the amino acids perspective is commercially, people are balancing down to the first four or five uh, first limiting amino acids at the minute in terms of what synthetic amino acids are available commercially. But I'm sure a time will come in the not too distant future where we're balancing down to seven, eight, and nine. So that's going to be one way of reducing soy levels. Um, in terms of alternative ingredients to soya, then rape can be used, but it's often not used at very high levels. And then we've all heard a lot about peas and beans, which is brilliant as an alternative protein source for pigs. I suppose it's picking up momentum all the time, but the quantities just aren't there commercially available yet for everyone to consider using it. But there's been a lot of research done on it. You know, the low tannin varieties that have come on stream have made this a really good option looking into the future. Um, and I know there are a few farmers successfully feeding beans continuously in Ireland as quite a big chunk of their protein supply in the diet. So I'm sure in the not too distant future, we're going to be formulating in beans and other ingredients um, as standard. I suppose you're looking at different protein levels in those raw materials as well. Beans have a lower protein content than than soya would have, but um, that can be allowed for. And then the other one, of course, that there's research going on is the whole area of insect protein, which that might be a little bit far away from being fed on Irish farms at the minute, but we need constant innovation in this area and we need alternatives to keep coming on stream. So I think it's positive that we're going to have other options moving forward. Fiona, if we look to other countries currently or even look to the future, what changes will we see or should we be looking at in relation to our pig diets? Yeah, I suppose the first one is dietary protein levels is something that's already being discussed in the industry and it will become more and more topical as time goes on. I suppose, particularly in the area of ammonia reduction from pig farms, you know, there's a published figure out there of a 1% reduction in dietary crude protein having the potential to reduce ammonia emissions by up to 10%. So we can just imagine the impact that would have if every farmer decreased their crude protein by 1%. Um, so small changes in this area can have a big impact. And I suppose using methods like those more synthetic amino acids through the premix, like we were talking about earlier, that will become more common in time, no doubt. Um, another thing, I suppose, that I would notice is it's no harm to, you know, contact your nutritionist and look at the amount of times you're reformulating your diets. So it may not be needed for things like dry sows if everything's going well, but if you're talking about finishers, which are, you know, representing 70% of your feed cost on farm. It might be the case that you're bought a certain way on certain cereals going forward. And a small tweak, you know, it could save a couple of euro. 
Persona finish feed. And I think it's no harm. That's what we're there for. Use us, I suppose. <laughs> Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and just discuss it with your nutritionist that, look, and I'm bought this way or I'm, I'm caught a bit on my barley. Is there anything I can do to go mixing my, my cereals? You know, um, it's an interesting one, but I think definitely make those little tweaks. Don't be afraid of hopping it off somebody, you know, that uh, they might have a new suggestion and it might just save a, a few quid basically. Um, and then another one is the actual analysis of ingredients. It's something that it can get overlooked from time to time and it can be a tedious thing to continuously do, I suppose, but it's definitely helpful when it can be carried out. Um, I know you have ongoing developments there with new lab facilities that are going to come on stream in Moorpark specifically for this purpose, which is going to be a brilliant service for all of us to avail of in the feed industry. Uh, I think most people are well aware of, you know, the difference one or two percent moisture can make on a load of grain in terms of financial and nutritional value. Uh, it's really important to be able to account for this moving forward. Um, and it's going to be really beneficial for the entire industry in Ireland to have that facility available to us. And I suppose I mentioned earlier about the those megajoule values that you have in for your individual ingredients on farm. I suppose if we have those values for different shipments coming in and different loads being used, you know, that you might be drawing from for a while, it can be really beneficial across farm level. Fiona, we'll leave it there. Um, we really touched on a lot, so I think there's a lot for people to think about. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Amy. Lovely to speak to you. That's it for this episode of The Pig Edge. And thanks to Fiona for joining me on the show. Don't forget to listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from so you never miss an episode. And for more information from the Pig Development Department, go to chagas.ie forward slash pigs. I'm Amy Quinn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>